Well, good afternoon. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. What I'm going to do tonight is go back and pick up on a lesson that I intended to do a few weeks ago, but as many of you know, I was out with COVID, so I want to go back and pick up this lesson on I am the bride, which I intended to do when we talked about Jesus being the bridegroom. So hopefully this meshes a little bit with what we talked about tonight, as that has been the goal this entire year, is to use Sunday night to piggyback off of Sunday morning to help us better understand and remember what it is that we are talking about. So in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we read these words. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So James says, look in the mirror. What do you see? He tells his readers to lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, as the King James renders it. One translation says to strip yourself of all filthiness and of the excretions of vice. The word used for put aside, lay apart, or strip signifies getting rid of all defilement just as one would strip off soiled garments or like a snake casting off its skin. The word used for filthiness here is the Greek word riparia, and it denotes dirt or filth. Here in this passage, it's used of moral defilement. However, what's interesting about this word is that it's derived from the word rupos. And when rupos is used in a medical sense, it means wax in the ear. It could be possible that it retains that meaning here and that James is telling his readers to get rid of everything that would hinder you from hearing the word of God. Get the wax out of your ears, clean out your ears, and truly listen. Not only does James say put aside all filthiness, he also says to put away all that remains of wickedness. Now the word remains here denotes an exceeding measure, something above the ordinary. It is used metaphorically in James to mean overflowing or superfluity, as the King James, I said, renders it. It is the ugly growth of vice. Vice here is like tangled undergrowth or a cancerous tumor, which must be cut away. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I'll bring all this out just so that we can see the vividness of James's language. It's as if he is saying, look in the mirror, but don't just take a gl passing glance Really examine yourself. Look deep beyond just the exterior, and what do you see? He goes on, of course, to talk about how we are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The point, of course, being that it's not enough to just hear the word of God. It's not enough just to listen. Listening has to translate into action. To hear the word and then do nothing is absolutely worthless. It's like the guy who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forget what, forgets what he saw. Hearing must be turned into doing. And so when we look in the mirror of God's word, what do we see? When you strip it all away and you really examine yourself, what is left? Now, the word for look in this passage is the Greek word parakupas, 
and it means to stoop and look or to gaze intently. It's the same word used to describe the actions of Peter and Mary when they peered into the tomb of Jesus that morning of his resurrection. James is using this word to suggest an intent look, a look that reveals an abiding interest on the part of the viewer, a recognition that there is something vitally important here to see. You know, perhaps you've never considered your status with the church. Maybe you attend, you're here, but maybe you've never really thought about taking things to the next level. Could it be that you're a church dater and don't even realize it? Could it be that you're someone who wants something from the church but unwilling to make a commitment? Church daters fit a certain profile. So for the sake of eliminating any vagaries, let's look at the description of a church dater. Church daters are often me-centered. They go to church for the programs and the activities, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. However, that is the primary motivation for their attendance. Worship is almost secondary. The driving force or the driving question for a church dater is, what can the church do for me? Now, this isn't a horrible statement either. Everyone should be seeking a church family that benefits them. It's not wrong to want to be fed. It's not wrong to, to want a strong youth program for your kids. It's, it's not wrong for any of these things to be on the forefront of your heart and mind when looking for a church, but it's very different from a mindset that only wants the church to provide catering. None of us here are a passive consumer. We want to be an active participant. We are called upon and counted upon to be an active participant. We all have a role that we must carry out uh, effectively in order for the church to function properly. Church daters are often independent, or perhaps a better term would be isolationists. They come to church because they know it's what they're supposed to do, but it's really about as far as it goes. They don't really want to get involved. They don't really want to be tied down. They don't really want any responsibility. They don't really want anyone depending upon them. They just want to come and be left alone. They are the spiritual equivalent of the man or the woman who tells the one that they're dating that they, they really don't want anything serious. They want to see other people. They're not ready for a commitment. They want to share time with someone of the opposite sex, but they, they want to do so on their, their own time, on their own schedule. And this even is all right to some degree. I mean, in the beginning, it's okay to feel things out. When you're looking for a church home, you don't want to be bombarded. Like when you go into a clothing store and the salesperson meets you at the door and follows you all around and, and, and trying to get you to, to buy this or that. I mean, it's annoying, right? You're thinking, could you just leave me alone? And so at the beginning, when we're searching for a church home, it's certainly it's proper to sit back and kind of take things in and see what it's all about. But once you do find your church family, we, we should commit. It's all right to take in the landscape for a while, but eventually we have to commit, right? And unfortunately, church daters are often critical and apathetic. I'm not sure the reason for this, but church daters are often short on allegiance and quick to find fault. Church daters often see the negative before they see the positive. Church daters often go looking for problems. Their vision is clouded by a pessimistic attitude. You know, one of our ministers here, Jake, always says, raise a hand instead of pointing a finger. You will always find things wrong with any church you attend, but instead of pointing the finger, raise your hand and say, I, I, I volunteer. What can I do to help? You know, so many continue to come to church, even though they may not be fully satisfied and, and even though they may have no desire to fully commit because they know that at some level they need the church. 
They know that they're supposed to be at church, but they, they feel more comfortable keeping their distance. It's kind of like the guy who refuses to commit to his longtime girlfriend and just settle for a perpetual engagement. He thinks that what he's doing is actually best, but he's missing out on many blessings. It's unfortunate, you know, that that commitment, like in marriage, is often seen in a negative light. So many people poke fun at marriage. It's the brunt of, of countless jokes. We, we refer to our wives sometimes. I say we, I don't. I know better. But some refer to their wives as the old ball and chain. You know, we, we talk about marriage as being a prison. We will lament about all the things that we have to give up and give into in order to make our spouses happy, like it's some big chore. Holy matrimony is often portrayed as a death sentence rather than a life filled with joy. I have a friend who has been married to his wife for over 10 years, and he told her the other day, the past 10 years have felt like 10 minutes underwater. You know, Much of our jesting about marriage and our spouses is done in good fun, but you know, the word marriage has really garnered a rather negative reputation in our society. And this is certainly not what the Lord intended. In fact, our Lord holds holy matrimony in such high esteem that he sees it as a fitting illustration for his love for the church. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22? He said, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. I want you to notice some key phrases or thoughts within this passage. First of all, notice that Paul says that men must love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Neither a love for a spouse nor a love for the church can be me-centered. It's a love that is sacrificial. Christ loved the church, not so that the church would do things for him, but that he might do things for the church. You see, self cannot win out. It's about Christ first, and in turn, it's about his church. One cannot love Christ and not love his church. One cannot be dedicated to Christ and not be dedicated to his church. It is a marriage. It's a holy union. Just as we love our spouses and should be willing to sacrifice anything and everything for them, we should be willing to do the same for Christ and his church. But secondly, I want you to notice that Paul says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. Real love, authentic love, loves. Not to extract a service or to ensure one's own physical comfort. Real love, authentic love, cherishes the one it loves. There is something very wrong when a man regards his wife, either consciously or unconsciously, as simply the one who cooks his meals and cleans up after him. And likewise, there's something wrong when one perceives the church as nothing more than a group of people meant to, meant to cater or, or serve a person's every whim. Real love, authentic love, seeks to give. Real love desires to please. Authentic love shows care and concern without expecting something in return. It is an unbreakable love that causes a man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, as we read in Genesis. There's a leaving and cleaving that cannot occur without 
and authentic love and deep devotion for one another. The knot that is tied is so tight that the two actually become one flesh. He is united to his wife as the members of the body are united to one another. He is not independent. He does not act on his own accord, thinking only of himself. He would no more think of separating from his wife than tearing apart his own body. Real love is unbreakable because the bond is Christ. You know, there are not two partners in a marriage, but rather there are three. There's the man, the woman, and Christ. Likewise, the bond between a Christian and Christ is one that is tied together with faith. Faith is the glue. And when we become a Christian, we become one with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Life becomes about serving and pleasing Him. I am not independent. I I do not operate on my own accord. He is my master. I am in submission to Him, and I strive to live an obedient life so that there is never any separation. Because to be divorced from Christ would be the worst fate of all. The point is this. Real love causes one to seek something different, something better in a relationship with the opposite sex. Dating is fun, it's exciting, but eventually if the couple is compatible, they seek to better define the relationship, to take things to the next level. And it's only natural for a couple who truly loves one another to move past the dating phase into a lifelong commitment that is signified by selfless sacrifice and undying devotion. Because marriage is a better commitment than dating. Despite the bad rap it often gets, there are many blessings to be enjoyed when a couple follows the biblical plan for holy matrimony. And likewise, church often gets a bad rap. I mean, how many of you have ever heard someone say, I love God, I just don't like the church? How many of you have ever had someone say to you, I believe in God, I just don't believe that you have to go to church, I can worship Him on my own. Or I'm not going to church, it's full of hypocrites. And yes, the church is not perfect. God's plan for the church is perfect, but the people who make up the Lord's church are not perfect. However, we do have a right, I should say it this way, we do not have a right to disown the church. She is described as the bride of Christ, and yet we think sometimes that we can reject her and be okay. In marriage, we enjoy the blessings of family. Husbands and wives often bring up children. The family unit is like no other. There is closeness and togetherness as the husband and wife and children live in harmony and share the joys of life as well as the ills. They strengthen one another and encourage one another in the journey through this life. And likewise, the fellowship within the Lord's family is like no other. There is a tie that binds brothers and sisters in Christ living in harmony as they strive to love and strengthen and encourage one another in this life so as to make it to the next. In marriage, there is a place to call home. In marriage, we find a better commitment. (coughs) You know, at virtually every wedding, there is a point where the wedding march begins to play And the audience turns and looks to the back of the venue, waiting for the doors to open. And when they do, everyone stands and watches as the bride walks down the aisle toward her groom. She is radiant and beautiful, adorned in white and seemingly floating on air. As the minister officiating the wedding looks for a a, a way to kind of bring the, the totality of the moment together, he has a unique vantage point for this special moment. I know when I do a wedding, 
I appreciate so much getting to stand center stage and look directly at the bride as she makes her way toward the groom. I usually will peek over and look at the groom's face to see his reaction. And typically, he's grinning from ear to ear, wistful, unspeakably happy, holding back tears, lost in love, knowing that he is about to, about to pledge his life to the woman of his dreams. And I believe that's just a small portrait of how our Lord views his bride. One day, his bride will walk down the aisle to meet him. As part of the bride, we need to do our best to make sure that she is beautiful and radiant and pure. That doesn't mean she is sinlessly perfect. It means she is washed in the blood of Christ and striving for holiness, seeking to live righteously and glorifying God in all that we do. And it all starts with a commitment. Let me ask you, are you a church dater? If so, you have a choice to make. You can go through life refusing to commit, refusing to take the relationship to the next level, or you can fall in love with the church. The choice is yours, but I, I want to tell you this. I feel confident that you'll discover that the church is not a burden. It's a gift. It doesn't tie you down. Quite the opposite. It anchors you to God. I love our church family. I think we have a great, great thing going here at Oldham Lane and a lot to offer. And I want to encourage anyone who is searching for a church home to give us a shot. Let us talk with you about the church that we love and the family that we're a part of. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you. We'll see you next time.